The Start On Demand. On demand. Incredible news on Monday as the Winnipeg Jets are coming home to 680 CJOB. One month since school started, we'll hear the perspective from a mom who is homeschooling. We'll speak to Winnipeg Olympian Sammy Jo Small on her new book, The Role I Played, Canada's Greatest Olympic Hockey Team. And who doesn't like building forts? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Tuesday, October 6th podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. So I get home yesterday. I don't know. 11.15, I sit down on the couch, just just sit down for a minute, I'm just going to sit down for a second, and I'm thinking, okay, I got to go to the grocery store, I need bananas, I need some lettuce, I need some tomatoes, I just got to get the motivation to get up, and I just, I'm suddenly so tired, I'm just, maybe I'll just lie down for a minute, just a, <laughs> just a couple of minutes, well, a couple of minutes becomes two and a half hours, I wake up on my couch, awkwardly, of course, uh, to a text message from our executive producer, uh, boss extraordinaire, Heather, uh, which she sent at 12.03, saying, Hi, Brett, can you please do everything you can to attend this 12.15 staff meeting today? So I think to myself, staff meeting at 12.15? Like, when did this happen? Because there was no staff meeting on our radar when we left yesterday. And so I check my calendar and I see special announcement. Like, what is going on? And then I dive into my email and realize, oh, my God, am I reading this right? The North American Ice Hockey League returns to CJOB. Greg, you must have been ecstatic. I was uh, beside myself, to say the least. I just, you know, you, you think about certain things. Today's a big day in the National Hockey League. It's entry draft day. And uh, I've written some introductions for our guests today. And the, the one thing I can't help but think about, Loren, are the young men uh, that there are going to be 31 young men that hear their names called today, drafted to NHL teams. And this is a manifestation of 18 years of hard work and sacrifice from them and their families. And all I could do yesterday was just think about the memories that I have that involved the Winnipeg Jets and CJOB going back to when I was a little kid. CJOB and the Winnipeg Jets were intertwined and they took me with the Jets all over the world, literally, when I was little. The Jets played the Soviet national team in Tokyo for a two-game series over New Year's. The Jets went to the Izvestia tournament in Moscow. They played exhibition games in Helsinki. And, of course, their World Hockey Association and NHL exploits all over North America. So, Loren, I, I had... Uh, just a flood of memories yesterday of, of years gone by. And then to pinch myself and to realize that I'm now working at the mighty 680 CJOB uh, at a time when we have National Hockey League hockey on our airwaves. It's uh, incredibly special. I was very excited. The first person I text to share the news that True North Sports and Entertainment uh, and Chorus Entertainment, which is, of course, our parent company, announced yesterday that CJOB now holds the exclusive radio rights to the Jets. The first person I text was my mom because she lives in the West Coast and she's a huge Jets fan and she travels a lot or she used to up until COVID. And, you know, <laughs> weekly, if not nightly, there'd be a text like, how do I get this game? Someone help me get this game because she'd be in a different part of the country or trying to figure out how to get it where she was at eating or, or you know, she maybe on the other side of the world and texting and, li and staying up late to listen. And I said, guess where you can listen to it all the time now mom <laughs> she's like what and I was like that's right us <laughs> so that felt pretty good to say and more than that I think this is really about you know they're, they're a community team much like the Bombers they really care a lot about Winnipeg and it's about bringing so many of the voices of the players and the coaches and the staff that we love to hear from hearing them more on CJOB. So, for example, like when, with our relationship with the Bombers, well, Zach Caleros is coming on to chat with us today. Now with this relationship with, with the Jets, who's coming on at 8? 
uh, some guy named Paul Maurice. I'm not exactly sure what he does. I have to look at the list of of things and uh, responsibilities uh, for. Yeah, of course he's the head coach. So uh, we're looking forward to to speaking with Paul Maurice uh, just after eight o'clock this morning. So it just you know all feels right with the world to a certain extent today as as mad a world as it is right now just for a few minutes yesterday everything sort of felt right with it all i got more and i just want to clear this up for the for the friends of mine who jokingly said so mcnab you doing play-by-play is that what it means and i was like yes it's gonna be me going wheeler coming up the right side he shoots Ooh, the lineup at the bud lounge is getting longer you might want to head over there for a beer like i <laughs> so there's lots of things to sort out in terms of uh, the dates and how this works and everything. But, man, it's, it's thrilling to be part of this relationship. It is indeed thrilling. And it's great not just for 680 CJOB, but for the Chorus Winnipeg family as the games will be simulcast on our friends down the hall at Winnipeg's Rock Station, Power 97. So that's great as well for uh, for our family and for Power and for... Just it's an exciting time. I think this was probably the sound that was going through the, the heads of everybody who worked in this building yesterday. That's from Portage in Maine. In what what was the date, Greg Mackling? May 31st, 2011, the day the Jets the announcement was made that the Atlanta Thrashers would in fact become the Winnipeg Jets. That's right. And I was actually at the King's Head, and people started saying like Oh, my God, the Jets are coming back. And I said, no, no. And then everybody ran to Portage in Maine. And sure enough, that's what happened. (laughs) Hal Anderson Afternoons had the pleasure of revealing to you that the Winnipeg Jets are coming home to 680 CJOB. And he spoke with Mark Chipman from True North Sports and Entertainment. But he also spoke to... Bob Irving, whom, as you might recall, was our longtime sports director here. Kelly Moore is now the sports director. Hal actually joked that Bob was fired from that position. Uh, He was not fired from sports director. He's still, of course, the voice of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. But he told Hal Anderson afternoons it broke his heart when the Jets came back to Winnipeg and the broadcast rights did not land on CJOB. So we wanted to play some of that for you in case you weren't able to tune in yesterday afternoon. Well, I've often said to people, I'll get over it, but I never really did get over it, Hal. Uh, The fact that we didn't get the broadcast rights when the Jets came back in 2011, just to sort of reminisce a little bit, uh, Mm -hmm. I came to CJOB in 1973, as you know, and of course the Jets were in the WHA, and Kenny Nicholson was doing the games along with Eddie Dearden and Stu McPherson. I'm dating myself here, but some of our listeners can relate to that, and then I got involved in the broadcast too. Uh, and then we got into the NHL, and it was Fryer and Kirk Kilback. Uh, we lost the rights in the 80s. We did our pre- and post-game shows from Chi-Chi's Mexican Restaurante. Uh, we got yeah. the rights back in the 90s. Right. And then the team left and went to Phoenix, and we hooked up with Mark Chipman and True North and did the Manitoba Moose games for uh, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And then when the Jets came back in 2011, it was uh, it was very disappointing that we didn't get the rights. But look, it's business, right? And sometimes yeah. things don't work out in business. And they didn't at that time for whatever reason. Uh, but I've often said to and I was extremely disappointed. And that phone call Mark Chipman talked about, Hal, uh, he phoned me uh, last week. And we exchanged pleasantries. And in the back of my mind, I'm kind of wondering, I wonder why he's calling me. Because uh, Mark doesn't call me like every day, right? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and he st- he started to talk about that phone call he made to me in t- 2011 uh, when he was informing me that we weren't going to get the Jets broadcast rights. And I said, I remember that phone call very well. And now I'm starting to think, what, what, what what's this all about? And then he advised me that uh, the radio broadcast rights were coming back to CJOB. And I was speechless. I... I was very emotional. I said to him afterward uh, when we hung up the phone that I, I actually broke down and I had some tears because it meant so much to me. I met a, I've been at CGOB for 47 years. I've got the logo tattooed everywhere on my body. Uh, and I hoped that I would live to see the day when the Jets were back on CGOB. And the good news is, Hal, I have lived to see the day when the Jets are back on 680 CGOB. And I'd like to thank Mark for his work, uh, Brent, you know, heard him talk about Brent Williamson and Kelly Moore. 
they did a fabulous job in making this happen. And so it's a wonderful day for the radio station. You know, I think it's fair to say, without sounding arrogant, I think it's fair to say, at least I feel this way anyway, the Jets are back where they belong. And we're all excited about it, and me particularly, because, yeah, they left under my watch, although, Hal, I'm, yeah. I'm disavowing any, any fault, okay? I'm doing a Donald Trump here. It was not my fault. <laughs> I think my biggest takeaway from that conversation is that, of course, there was a Chi-Chi's reference in there for you, Greg. <laughs> well, you see, I told you. <laughs> Full circle. You guys will not listen to me. It all comes back to Chi-Chi's. <laughs> I feel like, you know what, somewhere down the road, we all need to bring back Chi-Chi's to Winnipeg, and we can, be the, we can own that restaurant and run it. Greg, you'll get no argument from Bell. me. You'll get zero <laughs> argument from me on that. Suggestion. We could do the show from there. Keep talking, McNabb. <laughs> Margaritas for everybody. I like these ideas. Well, oh, I've, you could grow your hair long again, Greg. I I've mean, or, it's I've, all coming together. I've already taken care of the, the hair growing uh, long again part over the last six months here. But no, you know, it was always a thrill for us at Chi-Chi's because we'd have to roll out the big table. And I can remember exactly where it was set up above the, the main dining room there. And uh, all the broadcast team would come in and you had to make sure that they had their beverages and kept their water full and... That sort of thing. It was an absolute thrill. And then the players from the Jets and the other teams would walk over from the arena for post-game interviews. And then every once in a while, you would get to serve them. And it was an absolutely thrilling part of being a part of that broadcast coverage in an indirect way. It's What restaurant was this again? Uh, Chi-Chi's Mexican <laughs> Restaurante. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. Right now we want to talk about building forts and what we need from you at 204-780-6868 for a chance to win Santa Lucia pizza is to text us a story about building a fort or, or you can extend that to maybe you had a, like a safe place where you used to run and hide, whether just to feel safe or maybe you wanted some privacy or maybe you still have that kind of a place. I've often heard jokes about, you know, the bathroom is the safe haven. When you need a break, you just go to the can <laughs> for 10, 20 minutes to leave every, and hope that everybody leaves you alone. So text us, 204-780-6868, and after 9.15, we're going to give away a Santa Lucia pizza. And for those just tuning in, why, Loren, are we talking about forts? Because we had an epic night of fort building in our house last night, and we had just talked about this last week when we were... Uh, on our Feel Good Friday about games that we've been revisiting or things that we do now to pass the time because of COVID. And I talked to you guys about how much I love building forts to this day. And I don't know if that's because I grew up on the farm and we had so many options for forts, right? There was old sheds and shacks and bushes that you could build in and piles of trees and leaves. And I mean, like everywhere you turn, we were putting a fort together. And so I'm still very much like that in our house. And so the boys and I built a... Uh, epic fort in the living room last night and I sent you guys a picture because it was also a, a really big mess. I think there was six blankets and 11 chairs involved and the couch cushions were all off on the floor and then of course we had supper under there. Oh, that's great. Hey, yeah. And if you want to see the picture, go to our 680 CJOB Instagram story. It looks like a fun time was had by all. So let's go around the horn here. We got Jeff Fortier, Kelly Moore, Jeff Braun. Braun, why don't we start with you? Oh, uh, my sister and I used to build like a really sad little couch fort, nothing elaborate like the McNabs used to do or whatever, but, uh, and it would only last a few minutes. It would only last till dad got home and wanted somewhere to sit down and uh, that quickly became fort dismantling time. Let me lay down, put it back together, put the couch back together. (laughs) Isn't that an installation? Is that an installation in South Carolina fort dismantle? (laughs) <laughs> it should be it. Eh? Kelly Moore, what about so, you? Oh, yeah, that uh, quashed the creativity there. <laughs> well, back, um, uh, I guess it would be a few years ago now, in my teenage years, a buddy of mine and I, our houses were separated by uh, some rural bush area. So we decided right about at the halfway point of that rural bush area, we would build a tree fort and we would consume copious amounts of our homemade dandelion wine in said tree forts on Friday <laughs> and Saturday nights. And we would also invite girls to our said oh, tree fort on Friday scandalous. and Saturday nights. Whoa. 
face. You really, well, I am... He really took the innocence out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, we, we did, I don't know if it was copious amounts of dandelion wine, uh, but the missing part of the equation definitely was the girls never showed up. <laughs> uh, that actually kind of reminds me of, of my fort. A few years back, uh, this girl I was dating made a joke and said, uh, you know, because she, she was sleeping over, so she uh, made a joke that it would be fun to have a, set up a bed fort in the living room. Uh, so that we could watch the movie on the bed because I didn't have a television in my bedroom, just in the living room. Uh, so we joked and thought, ah, oh, that'd be funny, but that would never work. And then she, when she left, I immediately got to work and mapping out my living room to see if it could work. <laughs> so the next time she came over, I'd pulled my mattress and box spring out of my bedroom and, and I reorganized my entire living room to set up bed fort. So oh, we awesome. ordered some pizza and watched a movie on the bed in the living room and it was cute and romantic and... Yeah, so that's my fort. Wow. Yeah. Fortier, how about you? Uh, for me, it'd be the cardboard box fort, and we'd make awesome ones. Like, there'd be, like, a little front entrance, then another, went to another box, it was a hallway, which went to another box, which was a room, and there'd be blankets, and it was all good and whatnot, up until me and my friends were playing outside, and we had our soccer cleats on, and we were too excited, we ran to the fort with our soccer cleats on, but unfortunately, there was uh, some doggy doo. Oh, in the soccer cleats. Oh, no. So there goes the fort. Uh, that's Girl. the worst. That is the worst. <laughs> who And who had the pleasure of cleaning that out of the cleats? I, I, I can't remember. Probably your mom. Yeah. It was a parent for sure. <laughs> Probably mom. Wasn't you. <laughs> Otherwise, you, you, Mac, right? you know, my brother was more into the sofa forts and that sort of thing. I don't know why I never really got into it, but the coolest fort that I was fortunate enough to check out was my uncle's fort. He had this place. He grew up on a farm north of Winnipeg. He had horses and he had his own hangout from the time he was about 12 years old and it was just called The Shack. And there were all these epic stories about parties at The Shack. And then the final piece to the puzzle came when my aunt, because he's my uncle by marriage, won a Pepsi machine at a movie premiere and they moved that Pepsi machine into the shack. And it was the final, you know, when you just get that perfect piece for your man cave or for, for that perfect uh, piece of uh, that finishing touch of, of decor for your room. Well, this Pepsi machine was the absolute cat's meow because you don't only have to put Pepsi in it. You can also put, beer bottles in oh it. <laughs> excellent so, to have a vending machine that spit out beer probably not a bad thing after all so that's a high-end chef ever since i've wanted a a pepsi machine and <laughs> i want a piece of property where i can build my own shack you could still put one in the backyard yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> where's greg shack <laughs> <laughs> Today is a day millions of little kids who play hockey all around the world can imagine in their head being drafted into the National Hockey League. In your dream, it is likely your favorite team calling you to the stage and handing you a hat and jersey. For 31 young men, that dream will come true tonight as the NHL begins its annual entry draft. By now, which team calls your name is of little consequence. What this is, really, the, over the next two days, is is the NHL equivalent of heading to the grocery store to restock your shelves. It's really that opportunity to bolster the prospect pool or to immediately improve the team. And for the 10th time, Greg, since moving to Winnipeg from Atlanta, the Jets will welcome players they see as future assets into the fold. Yeah, the Winnipeg Jets, I think you could say, have done very well in their previous nine drafts, beginning with Mark Shifley in 2011. Ken Weeb covers the Jets for Sportsnet, and Ken joins us now. Good morning, sir. Yes, good morning, everyone. How's everyone today? Well, we're not doing... Some exciting news, I know. Yes, uh, so it, it's great to be uh, talking Jets uh, from this point of view as the radio rights holder, Ken. So hopefully this means lots more discussions with you over the next few years. The Jets have the 10th overall pick tonight in past drafts. Uh, the Jets have picked up Jacob Truba and Nikolai Ehlers, both at 9. Josh Morrissey at uh, draft position 13. Kyle Connor at 17. How safe is it to say they will get a future roster player at number 10? 
Yeah, they're going to get a good player for sure. When that player is ready to make a contribution, I think is the most important thing to remember. I think generally players picked in this position need at least one year and probably two before they're real impact players at the NHL level. But having said that, uh, Vili Hanela uh, made the roster last year. Uh, I mean, he didn't stick around past the uh, eight games, but uh, he didn't have a chance to make the team last year. So you never really know. But uh, if you're a Jets fan, I wouldn't expect the 10th overall pick to uh, step right into the lineup. And that's why I would expect the Jets to stick with our best player available, uh, you know, premise like Kevin Sheveldale told us yesterday, rather than hone in on a center or a winger, which or a center or a defense, which are those two areas of needs going into today for the organization. So the player candidate the Jets drafted second overall back in 2016 was, of course, Patrick Laine. And he is, as we all know, dominating the headlines right now with trade talk. Is trading Laine becoming more inevitable as the hours and days go by? Yeah, Lauren, I'm not ready to go as far as inevitable. I think it's you know it's certainly probable and more more likely than I would have thought a month ago when we started probably writing these stories uh, once the trade boards began to come out. Uh, I don't think the Jets are at the point of no return with Liney or his camp. Obviously, Liney wants first-line minutes, and uh, unless the Jets change their mind, that's not as readily available right now. But uh, I, I, I think there has to be a home run deal there for Kevin Sheveldale. The Jets have three years of team control of line A. They have them on a comfortable bridge deal this year. Yes, there's arbitration to contend with next year, but they still have three years. So I know everyone's pointing to the Jacob Truba situation. They're still two years out from that. So for me, Kevin Sheveldale won't make a panic deal uh, to move line A out. They're, they're not at that point. It's not a Evander Kane situation where it is. it was inevitable. Uh, but for me, as I wrote on the weekend, if the Jets make this trade, I understand they want to probably try to fill two areas of need, but they need to get an elite player back uh, if an elite scorer like Lani has moved. I don't think you can get a, a secondary piece. You need to get a, a real elite star back. Uh, otherwise, they risk uh, what happened with the Boston Bruins uh, when they traded Tyler Sagan, who himself was a second overall pick in 2010. Well, yeah, and you referenced that in one of your latest articles for Sportsnet, uh, where you kind of open a wound, I think, which for many Jets fans will never heal completely, the trade of Timu Solani to Anaheim. So with that and with Tyler Sagan, uh, time constraints dictate, we ask this direct question here, does the team who ends up with the best player usually win the trade? Yeah, almost always, Brett. I mean, that, and that's the concern for someone like Kevin Sheveldayoff. I mean, it's hard to win this trade in a couple of areas. Uh, public perception, because of that Solani deal, is always going to remember how poorly that worked out for the Jets. Obviously, that's a different time. But uh, as you mentioned, that's a wound that a lot of people aren't comfortable with. But uh, you have to get an elite player. I mean, you need a first-pairing defenseman, and then you still need a very good second-line center. I mean, there's a lot of rumors and rumblings out there. There are a lot of good players that are going to be available. But uh, it has to be the right dollar and it has to be the right fit for the Jets. But uh, it'll be a very interesting time. I mean, there's there's a lot of talk about uh, you know the floodgates kind of getting opened here and that maybe one deal creates that domino effect uh, for everyone around the National Hockey League because of the salary cap constraints and the flat cap. I mean, there are going to be players available that most people didn't think were going to be available, much like when Paul Stastny uh, became available for the Winnipeg Jets. So... There are uh, no movement clauses to take into account. There's an expansion draft at the end of next year. So all teams are cognizant of that as well. But uh, it should be an interesting time. And some of those trades could start as early as today because a lot of teams around the NHL, especially those with cap problems and also internal budgets, uh, see the draft picks as currency, especially those first-rounders. Ken, are there other ways for the Jets to fill these holes that they have versus trading an asset like Line A? Are there, I know there are mechanisms, but are there genuine options for them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing that we don't know is that how the marketplace will fully be impacted by what I just mentioned earlier in the flat cap and the uh, you know pandemic. Um, what, are, what are the costs of a free agent? Are the costs down compared to years past? They probably will be. Maybe not as much on the elite players, but that middle class of player, uh, there's some concern among those players about where their salaries are going and also via trade. I think there, there will be options for different players to be moved. But if you're going to get an elite number one pairing defenseman, obviously the Jets are going to have to give up something elite in return. So I think that's where things stem with that 
Patrick Laine's name being involved uh, in a lot of the rumor mill and discussions. So uh, I personally think there are other ways to improve the Jets, but I mean, that's the beauty of sports. So let's find out what happens in the next uh, week or so, which is probably the most important week in Kevin Shoveldayoff's tenure uh, in what will now be his 10th season as general manager. All right, Ken Weeb, Sportsnet, covers the Winnipeg Jets. Joining us live on 680 CJOB. Ken, thank you for the chat as always, sir. My pleasure, everyone. Have a great uh, show and a great day. Enjoy the draft. Earlier this morning, we set up tonight's first round of the NHL Entry Draft with Ken Weeb from Sportsnet. The draft begins at 6 p.m. Winnipeg time with our coverage getting underway with updates on the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham and full-on draft coverage on the CJOB Sports Show at 7 o'clock. We will welcome the Jets' first pick, currently slotted at number 10 for his first Winnipeg radio interview. And of course, it's an exciting day for the young men who are getting drafted and a big day for NHL organizations who really build their teams with the players that they select on this day. Draft and develop is mantra you will hear from many sports franchises, including the Winnipeg Jets, Greg. The man entrusted with the develop side of the equation is head coach Paul Maurice. Good morning, coach. Hey, guys. How are you? Thanks We're, for having me. Well, it's our pleasure to have you on the new radio voice of the Winnipeg Jets. It feels yeah. good to, feels good to yeah. say. Good to say that, right? Nice to hear. Congratulations. Well done. Yeah, well, we appreciate that. Hey, Coach, you've made a, a big deal in your time here over players playing their first game as a Winnipeg Jet. Just talk about what it takes to to go from being a draft choice to being a, a, a trusted player that gets time either on the penalty kill, on the power play, and, th- and that whole transition from draft choice to, well, shall we say star player. Well, that's, that's a big question. That's a long journey, you know, and today is the first step for a lot of young men. They get drafted, and I, it, it, I don't know if this stat is still true, but it was a few years ago that only uh, 11, so one-third of the uh, first-round players will play 100 games in the National Hockey League. So, And that's kind of shocking, right? So there'll be 31 kids drafted in the first round, and every one of these guys and their families are sure this guy's playing 18 years, right? Uh, it is such a difficult thing to make it to the National Hockey League. The numbers just, just prove that out. So that transition uh, is, is challenging. There's physical and mental and truly emotional development that has to happen from the time they're 17, 18 years old before they play their first game, before they cement themselves in the league. We've been very fortunate in Winnipeg. Um, our, our draft record is really, really strong here. Our, our, our scouts do a fantastic job of finding people that can make that jump and uh, where, you, where you're, you know, you're excited certainly about the high-end guys that we've drafted, but when you get a player like uh, Connor Hellebuck's not a first-round draft pick, that those are where I think that the, the uh, scouts really get excited when they get a, a major award winner that's not a first-round pick. So the things that go into it are all the things that that probably it, it takes it takes a real support group when you when you think of these 18-year-old players. That support group is their family, and that's. You know, I've got a speech just about locked in for just about everybody, a guy who plays his first game uh, and certainly a guy that gets drafted today. You know, make sure that at some point you grab your parents, your mom or your dad, if, if you're a single family home or if both parents, make sure you thank them because they put an awful lot of time uh, just the sheer hours. And we all know that in Canada, what it takes to, to raise a hockey player, boy or girl. Um, just a side note, I, I was listening um you were talking about girls hockey in Winnipeg and how difficult it was for Olympians, uh, female Olympians to play on boys team. One of the things that shocked us, I, I brought a, my daughter was 16 when we moved up, was the sheer number of um, girls teams and opportunities for girls in a city like Winnipeg. So that kind of community, uh, that interest, that, that culture of community that Winnipeg has can grow hockey players. And that's, and that's what happens now. So the player leaves kind of the nest and he becomes, he'll play, certainly still play for his junior team, college team, uh, a team in Europe. But, but we take over now. We start to monitor early on everything that they do, their off-ice training, their on-ice performance. Our scouts are constantly reaching out. We've got, you know, three-time um, Stanley Cup champion Mike Keane and Jimmy Roy here that, that will kind of take over in our player development. And eventually we start working these guys into training camps and get to know them a little bit better. 
So is that something that a player should be looking for too? Of course they want to get to a wedding winning team, Paul, but you mentioned that idea of a community. And if you're 18 years old and moving away from your, your nest or what you've known for many years, coming to a community must be really important. Is that part of your speech in a night like tonight when you select that player? Well, it is for me because I've been through it. So it feels like I just got here in Winnipeg, but, um, Winnipeg wouldn't maybe be quite as well known as some of the other places, especially when you're talking about European players. Um, but that's part more. I give that one to the family, uh, to the moms and dads that are there. That I brought three teenagers up here, so I had one going into grade 12, one going into grade 11, and one going into grade nine when we moved here. And there isn't a better place, in my experience, to, to raise your family. This is just such a brilliant place to live. Uh, their friends, the, the people that we've met here. It's such a good place to live. You know, there's just Blake Wheeler was in the office the other day. He's got his kids here. They're in school here. It's just, it's just such a great place. And some of these, now, if, you, if you're drafting a, a Canadian kid, he's got a pretty good handle on what Winnipeg's all about. Uh, maybe a little less true for some U.S. guys, but, they, but Europeans, for a lot of them, this is a new place. Uh, to let them know what a fantastic city this is, what, what a great organization we have here, people that care about each other, that... Uh, that want to develop these young men into men, more than just hockey players, but into men. And what we're hoping for over the years is that you know, they'll become Winnipeggers and raise their kids here and, and be part of that community again and maybe have an opportunity to give back. So that's part of the speech. That one, There's different speeches. One happens on the draft floor, what happens up in the suite with the parents, uh, but it is, it is part of the speech. Well, Paul Maurice, we look forward to hearing more of your speeches right here on 680 CJOB. Thank you for the time. Uh, My pleasure. And again, congratulations. Look forward to working with you. One month ago today, Greg, Manitoba kids started going back to school. Mm, and I guess you could put going back to school in quotation marks because uh, it feels like my kids are out of school more than they are in it. And I know the school systems and the school divisions, the individual schools are doing the best that they can. But, Loren, I'm sorry, but I, I'm starting to get a little bit frustrated with the amount of extra time that my kids are having on their hands. And I know I can rectify that. Uh, but I just really thought that there would be a lot more homework, a lot more online assignments involved in the parts of the day when my kids aren't physically in a classroom or at school. So some of that is on me, but some of that is also, in my mind, on those who have created this plan to have our kids back at school. Well, it's such a different experience depending on maybe the division you're in, the school you're in, the teachers you might have, and even your age. And we know part of the different rules and requirements around age had to do with the fact that who was more susceptible to the virus. And that's why they're having some of these differences between how often kids go to school. So as you mentioned, Greg, if your kids are in high school, the days are staggered either every other day or sometimes every third or fourth day, depending on how it's going. If they're elementary school kids, they're likely going every day. And then, of course, in thousands of homes, there are kids who aren't going to school or technically going to the official school. Some 4,500 kids in Manitoba are actually being homeschooled this year. 4,500 kids. That's up 25% from last fall. Michelle Baduski lives in Rivers. She's a mom of three who are in grades one, four, and 10. And she made the choice this year to homeschool them and joins us now for her experiences on the past month. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. Let's start with the basic question. Why did you decide to keep them home and, and try to teach them yourself? Well, you know what, in March when they were sent home, um, when the pandemic first hit, I was a little skeptical about whether or not I would be able to keep up with them. And we adapted and they did extremely well, extremely well in the spring. And based on, you know, my friends and different parents that I was talking to, they didn't do as well necessarily. And my kids just seemed to love it. I, I mean, they just flourished. So we started looking into maybe doing this permanently because we weren't sure what September was going to look like. So how's it going so far? We love it. I actually, I have an older son who's 26 now, and I kind of regret not doing this from day one. Wow. Uh, Now, obviously, there are going to be some people asking about the economical and the challenges that you might have had to make this decision. And so maybe you can uh, let us in on that. What what allowed you to do this and what sort of sacrifices are you making on that front? 
Well, luckily, I'm I'm self-employed. I own my own business, um, which was shut down in March with with COVID. And so when I reopened in the summer, I made some changes. So I kind of changed my hours. I work from home a lot whenever I can. And obviously, I'm not doing as much as I once was. We've had to sacrifice that. That was something my husband and I kind of sat down and said, you know what, Let, let's look at this. How is this really going to work if I don't go back to work full time? And we had to juggle some numbers, but we're also saving money in a lot of areas. And... Uh, you know what, the stress has been, the reduction in stress has been worth it. It's It's been a little, um, you know, what you were saying before about not knowing what's going on in school and sometimes the kids are in school and out. I don't have to deal with that. I, I don't have to deal with it. I don't have sure. to worry about exposure. And we just keep going. Everyone says, well, school started in September. We never really stopped. Mm. We well, kept learning all through the summer. That's amazing to hear because I think one of the stresses many parents have and, and back in the spring when you were doing that remote learning, you just could, it was hard to get a sense of if you were doing it right, if they were learning where they were at. And it's worth pointing out that experience versus what you are doing now is different, Michelle, right? If you're homeschooling officially, do you get sent a curr- curriculum from the province? Do you have better benchmarks and guidelines? Like what's the difference between what you're doing now versus what might have been sent home for you in the spring? It's night and day. Um, in the spring, I call that schooling from home, right? Like you're still part of the school system. You're dealing with their curriculum, lessons with the teachers, that kind of thing. I don't do any of that. We set our own curriculum. The province, um, you don't, they don't send you anything. You don't get any help. You don't get any support. But you also have the freedom to kind of decide how you're going to do it. And homeschoolers do a lot of different things. We've chosen to actually follow the Manitoba curriculum, which is free to download. And then I just kind of set my own lessons so that my kids are learning what they would be learning in school, just maybe not the same way. And I was really frustrated in March when, um, you know, the, we, they switched to schooling from home and lessons were very sporadic. I mean, it was I, I hats off to the teachers in the schools. You know, like you were saying earlier, they're doing the best they can. But <laughs> they're, they're trying to adapt to this new normal as well. And I didn't want my kids falling through the cracks. I don't want them to miss a year of education. Uh, I don't want this to be kind of a, a lost year for them. And if that's how they were doing it in March, I was really concerned that come September, that's, you know, I wasn't sure what they'd be learning if they went back to school. If they'd be spending the first few months trying to catch up with the spring or, you know, kind of working at the level of the kids who didn't do anything all spring. Um, so I just kind of figured that we'd do our own thing. It was working, and we kept going. Well, Michelle Baduski, thank you so much for joining us to t- share some of this experience with us. This is fascinating stuff, and uh, hopefully it continues to move along swimmingly for you. I-, I hope so. And you know what? For those parents that don't have a choice, I really feel for them. I, I really do. It's got to be very difficult to be in that position right now. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you so much for all of your wonderful stories on building forts and safe places. You've taken a great trip down memory lane. You've painted some wonderful pictures, but we only have a couple of minutes here to share some of these, so I've grabbed two text messages. We have a runner-up. And a winner. So Loren's going to read the winner. It's something we already read today, but it was just so funny. Uh, But Greg, do you see Barb's text? I sure do. In regards to forts, back in the 70s, we had a cottage just outside Kenora. There were 12 cottages at that site, and there were a lot of kids. We broke into two groups to build two forts. I thought I'd lucked out, and as I was the only girl in my group and thinking I was amongst handymen. Well, I was wrong. Very wrong. My sister's group had such a beautiful, quaint fort. It was painted, had a little bookshelf, a table with little log chairs, curtains, even Jiffy Pop (laughs) hanging on the walls. My group had nothing like that. We couldn't even sit upright and couldn't fit our whole bodies in the fort either. We all laid with our legs hanging out and we had to move our heads side to side just to talk. It was damp. It was dark. I was so jealous of the little castle both my sisters had built with our other lake friends. Eventually, we were all invited to their fabulous fort for some Jiffy Pop treats. Wow. 
That is, imagine thinking, yeah, we got this made, and then going to see that group. Yeah. Let's see how the other half lives. Uh, but Evelyn is our winner, Loren, and we read this earlier, but it's just so funny. Uh, she, we got to give it to her. Yeah, I think Evelyn wrote in around 6.50, so she was up early. She's a loyal listener, and she texted us to say, when my son was about 10, he decided to build a tree fort in the cherry tree out back. I gave him a bucket of nails, and he said he had found some wood at a construction site where they were building a church in our neighborhood. He said that the garbage bin held a lot of scrap lumber, so I said, okay. He worked on it for quite a while. I was working myself, so didn't pay much attention to the progress. I finally checked when I got a knock on the door from the police saying that someone had been stealing wood from the church down the street. It was not scrap lumber. He was in a bit of trouble, not to mention the tree died because he had used so many nails and screws. That poor tree didn't stand a chance, Evelyn texts. And she also says at the same time, her son went on to become a contractor before going into the military. And she added this little tidbit, which was excellent. The police were able to track him down because they basically followed him down the sidewalk as he was... (laughs) Carrying that axe over his shoulder. Those were different days, she writes. I love that. Busted. Did you steal some wood? No. What are you doing with that axe? Uh. (laughs) (laughs) What axe? Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, thank you very much for joining us this morning on The Start. Our next guest is a three-time Olympian and five-time world champion goalie for the Canadian National Women's ice hockey team, a multi-sport athlete. She attended Stanford University on a scholarship for discus and javelin. She currently works as a motivational speaker as well, is an owner of a hockey school that runs throughout four provinces. She also helped start the Canadian Women's Hockey League. The list of her credentials, quite frankly, is as impressive as it is lengthy. And of course, she's also an author. The book is entitled The Role I Play. The writer and author is our guest, Sammy Joe Small. Congratulations on the book, Sammy Joe, and it's great to have you back on air in your hometown of Winnipeg. That's right. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, this book is really, you know, and, and Brett just outlined a bit of your personal journey, but the, the title, The Role I Played, as you look back on the, your journey to get to where you are, how did you decide which stories you would you would tell and which ones you wouldn't? Because the, there had to be some you left on the cutting room floor, so to speak. For sure, yeah. First off, I wanted to make sure it was okay with all the uh, quote-unquote characters within the book. So, you know, my friends, my teammates, and I didn't necessarily want to share their stories. I wanted to share our stories from my perspective. So there certainly was some that are better left uh, amongst teammates um, and others that about myself growing up, I played, as you mentioned in the intro, so many different sports um, and they all taught me such valuable lessons. Uh, But some of them, uh, some of the stories were written about the same type of moments, overcoming a challenge or uh, perhaps learning something about myself in a certain way. So um, you know, having to pick between a volleyball story or a water polo story uh, when I was talking about great coaches that I had, things like that, that they were tough because it meant that certain people were left out in certain moments in my life. But um, I guess it just means that I'll have to have a book number two someday for all those other stories. <laughs> well, we had some conversations last week on National Coaching Week uh, about coaches and the influence that they have on your life, Sammy Joe. And, and even uh, when you're younger, sometimes those co- coaches uh, become mentors, they become friends, they become integral in your life and maybe ways far away from the field, the ice or the pool. Talk about some of the special coaches in your life and uh, the life lessons that you received from them that maybe ultimately had nothing to do with sport. For sure, you're so right that um, coaches and role models and mentors can play such valuable Uh, roles in our lives and uh, they might be uh, somebody who is uh, coaching a specific team but it might just be somebody that um, you know is helping you it might be a peer it might be you know it could be it could come in so many different shapes and forms and um, when I wrote this book uh, two coaches in particular that I talk a lot about on the national team Danielle Sauvageau and Melody Davidson um, are not really seen in the best of light in this book you know they are the ones that are making the hard choices that perhaps I won't play or that I'm going to be in a certain position. And um, so I had long conversations with them after I wanted them to read the manuscript and I wanted them to know the respect and admiration that I now have for them. 
Um, but as a young athlete, you often see your coaches as not as real people. You know, as it's like being a student. You don't see your teacher going home to a family. You don't see them with real emotions. And I never really understood how many people they had to deal with, how much that perhaps they had to deal with chauvinistic attitudes. They had to really push for our team and that I was just a small part of that. So I wanted them to be okay with it. And I wanted them to know that I really had come full circle and do have lots of respect and admiration. But some of the great coaches uh, that I did have growing up in Winnipeg, I think really shaped me as a, um, as an individual, as a, as a person. And I think the the best thing that, came out of all these coaches was they put the athletes um, at at the forefront. So never once did a coach say that, you know, I couldn't play this sport or I couldn't be part of the debate team at school or I couldn't do these other things. They all tried to really make it work so that I was happy. And ultimately they just allowed me to play. They encouraged me. Of course, they taught me tough life lessons as well um, that we learned through sport, but I always felt like I was supported and um, coming from, I went to Collège Antove, um, coming from a, a smaller school where it was really integral that all the girls play if we were going to have a team, we got to know our coaches really well. And it was really those role models, those mentors that guided me in my athletic career, but also pushed for more and always um, allowed me to do these other things to explore who I really was. One of the most difficult things to be in this world, I think, is a pioneer. So when you decided to play hockey, I mean, we mentioned javelin, we mentioned discus. Uh, were there other aspirations than to simply get out on the ice? Well, you know, I, I, I didn't really have much aspirations when I first started playing. I just wanted to play. And my brother played, and my parents um, didn't really understand why girls couldn't play. And I, I'm so thankful that they pushed for me to be able to play the game I loved because... So many of my peers, uh, so many of my female peers never got to play. And, you know, I always felt fortunate that I had that amazing opportunity um, to be able to play this game of hockey. But like my, my teammates as a young girl, I, I dreamt of playing in the NHL. And when I realized that that wasn't going to happen, I had these Olympic aspirations, but it was in more of the summer sports. So I grew up in a swimming family and uh, we would religiously watch the Olympics on TV and dream that someday we could be there. And I never, it never dawned on me that women's hockey would eventually be there because um, there was no national team for me growing up. It wasn't something that we aspired to, but I think the fact that I, um, in the back of my mind had this ideal of what the Olympics were, it was just somewhere that, I think, in my mind, great athletes went. And so to have it come full circle for women's hockey to be accepted into the Olympic Games and then to be part of that very first women's Olympic hockey team was really special. But it wasn't necessarily that dream that I dreamt. And I talk a lot. I work as a professional speaker now, and I talk a lot about dreams and goals and how they're so integral. However, we might not end up where we think we're going to end up and that life can take so many different twists and turns. And that was really no different for myself as an athlete. And it's about being ready and prepared in that moment that you're in. And that could come from all the various different sports that you play or things that you do and um, to just do the best that you can in that moment, in whatever given moment that you're in. You mentioned just how, you know, growing up and being thankful for your parents. You know, when I was growing up, my sister and I both wanted to play hockey, and that just wasn't a thing. And a few years later, that did change, and there was all sorts of people who were getting involved. But in those instrumental years where it would have made a difference, it wasn't happening yet. And so I'm so thrilled now when I see all these girls playing hockey, so many women aspiring. Oh, it warms my heart. But what I don't still see, Sammy Joe, is enough, I think, women on the benches. And so how do we Mm -hmm. make women like yourself, women who played hockey, say, yeah, also I'm going to get into coaching more because that whole idea of representation, not just seeing yourself as a player, but recognizing uh, someone on the, on the bench who knows what it's like, I think is really important. And I'm not sure we've seen that shift yet. For sure. I think you're right. And I think it, it extends even further than that into administration, into officiating, into all the aspects of sport uh, that women just are not as welcomed. And I think we're starting to see a shift in Canadian psyche when it comes to that. Um, as it translates into the boardroom, I think it also then translates into the coaching positions and seeing a woman in power. And I, I do think that um, that is starting to happen. And I think we need to celebrate what it does. And what I love seeing is walking into a rink and a mom is coaching her kids' teams. I mean, that's really neat to see. Um, and it could be their boys' or their girls' teams. Um, but I think we're going to start to really see a shift when this generation of player 
the generation of player that could walk into a rink, like you said, and have no qualms about being there, that you see a little girl with a ponytail and it's just normal. This generation, who'd never experienced any of um, maybe the naysayers, we'll say, um, when they're done, their college maybe done, uh, you know, started to have a family, I think we're going to start to see them come back into the game in just a huge number of, of people because for a lot of my peers that never got to play growing up, and I don't know if this is the same for you, but um, they've started to play hockey at a, at a later yeah. age, so in their <laughs> 40s and 50s. And, it's and I'm amazing. terrible at it, but I love it. <laughs> right, but it's amazing to see. And it's just, you know, it's, they play because they love it and they never got this opportunity. Um, and those women probably would have been the coaches. You know, those would have been that generation just didn't. Now they're being coached for the first time, and it's just exciting to get back on the ice to actually play. So I think we're we're slowly starting to see that transition. And, you know, within the women's game at every level, there is women that are administrating and um, on the bench and in various different roles. And um, but as we know, it, it does take time and it just it takes time to have that sort of mental shift, not just from the men in our lives, but from us as women as well to have the time. Um, I do coach a hockey school, but I don't coach full-time because I was playing full-time. You know, you're so involved in your daily training. Uh, But maybe someday when my daughter's a little bit older and she's uh, within a team, I might start coaching a team. And I think I see a lot of my peers starting to do that, coaching their kids at the younger ages. And um, it will be a shift. And uh, that's it's certainly fun to see that. Sammy Jo Small is our guest. She's from Winnipeg, three-time Olympian. The book is The Role I Played. And Sammy Jo, you've mentioned your peers several times in this discussion. And, uh, I mean, that was uh, obviously a group of individually very talented women who accomplished what you did as a team. So collectively, absolutely powerful, but just extraordinary people as they have left the world of hockey. We've only got about 30 to 45 seconds here, so I'm shortchanging you here. But just that <laughs> idea of of out of that team came these, these incredible people who are such an integral part of Canadian society now. For sure. You're so right. And that's what I tried to highlight in this book is these amazing, strong, resilient women that I've been fortunate to call friends that I think had to overcome a lot to be able to play the game they loved and that strength and resiliency got them to the next level. And one I'd just like to highlight is uh, one of my best friends, Jennifer Bottrell, also from Winnipeg. I'm going to be on Battle of the Blades soon, which um, will be exciting, a whole new challenge for her. But these women that have just really made their mark and it's, I want people to know those characters. I want them to know the people that I was so fortunate to get to know. And hopefully people through this book can um, find themselves in it and see the women in their lives in the same light as these women in the book. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.